baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. We have seen some incredible images coming out of Iran the last several days. Images of people taking to the streets to take their future into their own hands and at great personal risk. Decades-long economic disparity and oppressive religious governmental structure has pushed Iran into widespread social unrest, and it's deeper and more far-reaching than we've seen before. Young people and the working class of the country have taken to the streets against their rulers. Those in control claim the protests are the work of Iran's enemies, like the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia fomenting the unrest. During a Friday U.N. Security Council meeting called by the U.S. to address the situation in Iran, the Iranian ambassador to the U.N. basically accused the U.S. of abusing its power in the Security Council, saying, really, we should all butt out of what they say is an internal affair and should be outside the mandate of the U.N. Now, certainly the U.S. and many other nations have an interest in the internal affairs of Iran and its influence in the region. But One of our most noted local scholars on that nation says what's happening in his homeland with its people is being driven internally by a citizenry hungry to realize its full potential. My guest on KCBS In-Depth is Dr. Abbas Malani. He joined us from Stanford University, where he's the director of Iranian studies and the co-director of the Iran Democracy Project at the Hoover Institution. Dr. Milani, thank you very much for joining us once again on In-Depth. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Tell us what the protests are about. What is the main complaint? The protests began for economic grievances in the city of Mashhad, which is a bastion of conservative religious thought. People began to protest uh, an increased price in eggs, possible increased price in gasoline, and the collapse of a bank where some of the people's uh, holdings were lost. That very quickly spread from that religious town to more than 70 different towns of different size, several of them known for their religious piety, like Qom, the center of Shiite thought in Iran, or Najafabad, another very famous uh, religious city. and. Uh, Again, uh, not only the center of gravity morphed, but the demands and the militancy of the slogans and the militancy of the actions also increased. It became more and more political. Shouts about death to the dictator, meaning Mr. Khamenei. Shouts about we don't want Islamic Republic, we want an Iranian Republic, uh, replaced uh, the economic slogans of the early face. And who are those protesting? Is it limited? We know there are many young people, but is it limited just to the young people? No, it is not. It is uh, the number of people who have been arrested, according to the regime, which is now over a thousand, is predominantly 
the youth, but my sense is that they went and arrested uh, the youth, mostly as a preventive method. Uh, they've arrested uh, a couple of uh, at least 100 students at Tehran University that weren't at all involved in any meaningful way with the demonstration. What makes, I think, this round of demonstrations rather remarkable is how many of the demonstrators come from the ranks of the poor, working class, the people who literally say are having a hard time making ends meet. And for the regime, that poses a major problem. First of all, it has long claimed to be the government of the dispossessed, and now the dispossessed are rejecting it. Second, the dispossessed, if they are desperate, as they seem to be now, are very difficult to dissuade by terror. They're very difficult to dissuade by the police and threatening them. So it is much more, I think, serious challenge to them, both ideologically and practically. And the fact that as a result of factional feuds between them, between different factions within the government, almost everybody had been talking before the, this burst of uh, violent uh, activity uh, about the economic hardships. Mr. Khamenei himself, the supreme leader, a few days before this, had complained about how people's lives are difficult. It is also now more difficult for them to say these are baseless, although they have tried to blame the United States, Israel, foreign intrigue, uh, Britain, everybody other than themselves. But it is, I think, a more difficult sell than if the demonstrators, for example, were the upper class neighborhoods of Tehran or the middle class educated uh, women of Tehran. They could say these are Western inspired movements. When it's the working class, when it's working class in religious cities shouting death to the dictator, it's very difficult, although they're trying to do it, but it's very, a difficult sell to say this is a, an American-inspired or Israeli-concocted or a Saudi Arabia-created uh, movement. For the people who are protesting and who are angry, do they see the fault lying more at uh, the feet of the, the religious leadership or the governmental leadership, which some have outsiders have called more moderate, President Rouhani, more moderate? I don't know if you see it that way. No, I do. I, I, I do see it that way. And I think part of what has happened is that Mr. Rouhani, who was reelected on the promise of improving the economy has not been able to deliver. And he hasn't been able to deliver partly because the U.S. policy has changed and U.S. policy under President Trump has toyed with the idea of uh, debunking the nuclear deal, starting new sanctions. So the idea of new investments coming to Iran and an improvement in the reality of life being realized hasn't actually actualized. So people have lost that hope. Uh, they partly blame Rouhani for that failure, but they also blame the religious conservatives because I think it is more than anyone. They, who did not allow normalized relations with the U.S. under the Obama administration, it is they whose corrupt legal system makes it virtually impossible for any serious investments to come to Iran. It is they who keep constantly anting up on more revolutionary rhetoric against Saudi Arabia, against the United States. All of that, I think, has caused people to see that part of the problem, a major part of the problem, is in the aging, men-dominated, septuagenarian, conservative, clerical elite 
led by Mr. Khamenei, who has been leading the country for almost uh, the entire time. Describe life in Iran. Americans only see what we see on American news and what we hear our political leaders saying about Iran, and that is usually the government of Iran. But describe life in Iran for the people of Iran and their perspective of the rest of the world. And you know, we have t- two Irans, I think, and anyone who has traveled to Iran, they come back all same same thing. That the Iran of the Iranian people is very different, profoundly different than the Iran of the regime. The Iran of the regime is an intransigent, anti-American, anti-global, anti-Western, anti-modern, anti-woman, anti-joy elite. The people live a very different life. 60-odd percent of Iran's graduating class last year from college were women. Iran has over 5 million college graduates. Iran has a disproportionately larger number of graduate students going for master's and PhD than the United States in terms of comparison with the undergraduate. That in a sense is because of economic difficulty. People instead of going to the market for a job uh, try to go another two years or another four years to graduate school hoping that the future will bring a better economic reality. It's a highly vibrant society. There's an underground life that is going on, a life of music, a life of underground theater, a a life of sexual revolution that is very incongruent with the dour, conservative persona that the leadership has, that the Iranian uh, elite today has. One of the problems that Iran faces, and one of the reasons I wasn't at all surprised this uh, outburst came, is that you can't have a society where people's everyday lives is so profoundly incongruent with the culture and the values and the professed pieties of a minority that rules over them. Add to that incredible economic corruption, add to that incompetence, uh, add to that a failure to understand the strategic challenges, economic challenges that Iran faces. You get a population that lives one life, you get an elite that is in its own delusions, and potentially a very volatile situation, which is what we have had. Iran had a major outburst of demonstrations in 2009. In Tehran, by some accounts, three million people came to into the streets and demonstrated. If only eight years later, we have another major burst, as we now have. To me, that would indicate that the system is in some kind of a crisis. The leadership, unfortunately, at least ostensibly in what they profess, don't believe there is a crisis. They just believe uh, there's the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel that are instigating. And the second problem is, according to some of the clerics, the social media. Uh, Close down the social media, the Friday prayer said, close down the social media, close down Telegram, and all of our problems will be solved. It won't be because first of all, they can't close it down. Second of all, even if they do close it down, the problems are much more serious than the ability of people to access internet. There are over 50 million Iranians who are connected to the internet. This is not North Korea. This is a different society and ruling it, as Mr. Khamenei seems to be keen on, in the way of uh, North Korea, it's just not gonna work. 
what you describe as that the vibrant life is, I can totally see it in Tehran, the underground life. I mean, the incredible art and music and food and literature that Iran for centuries has given the world, certainly this generation is no different. So I can see that in the cities, but it's fascinating to me that you said that this has spread to the smaller, more religious communities as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, some of the most uh, fervent activities, some of the most radical slogans have been in small towns that were historically known for their religiosity. And remember, uh, it's one thing to demonstrate in Tehran, a city of maybe 14 million people, where you can count on anonymity. You can hide in a crowd, although there are cameras in Tehran all over. This is Tehran is arguably one of the most surveyed cities in the world, but nevertheless, people do it. They hide. They you know you can count uh, on being one in fourteen million. But in a small town where the police know everybody, where uh, the local mosque leader knows uh, the faces of people, it takes a lot more audacity and it indicates a lot more desperation. If you take to the streets and you engage in political action that is directly challenging the status quo, breaking some of the taboos. It was very, very rare till last week for people to directly uh, say death to the dictator. There had been some in um, 2009, there had been some at the universities, but it was very limited. Now, in a soccer game in the city of Tabriz, the entire stadium was shouting death to the dictator. I mean, it was a remarkable sight for me to see. And, and this is a team, incidentally, that is owned by the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards. As one commentator said, what have you done to this country that a team that you own? Imagine 80,000 people in the Levi's Stadium shouting slogans against the uh, uh, 49ers owner families. So because of exactly what you're describing, do you see this pushback against the government and the religious leadership continuing and causing a change, unlike what happened after their elections in 2009 and those protests? Uh, I, I think it is going to bring about change, even if uh, the change is not apparent at the top. I mean, I, I can't imagine that they can go back to the status quo ante after these demonstrations quiet down. Because what gave rise to these demonstrations, aside from the political despotism that is very problematic and needs to be solved, is the economic challenges. The economic challenges are going to be increasing. Iran's oil revenues are diminishing. Iran's share of oil market is diminishing. Iran is facing a water shortage, according to the government itself, of biblical proportion. Iran this year is facing one of the greatest droughts of the last century. The prices are going to rise. Iranian currency, the price of Iranian currency, just in the last week alone, has uh, diminished by about 10%. Imagine this, whatever dollars you had today, next week will be worth 10% percent less. To get a sense of the dimensions of the calamity, one dollar on the eve of the revolution would give you seven and a half Persian tuman. One to seven and a half. It is now one to four thousand five hundred. That's how much the value of Iranian currency has collapsed. And with that, unless you are within the system 
and have access to foreign currency or have access to enormously ill-begotten wealth, you have lost a major part of your wealth. That is, I think, the structural challenge. And nothing other than a more serious, a more sober, a more rational regime is going to be able to solve that problem. I mean, that's, that is is so difficult for me to comprehend. We're talking about access to water and, and food and a population that could be facing a survival situation and how a government can survive if it goes to, if it goes to that extreme. Well, you know, a brutality can get you uh, some time. It can buy you some time. But I truly uh, I, I invite your uh, listeners to come to our website, the Iranian Studies website, and we have a project at uh, Iranian Studies at Stanford called Iran Vision 2040. And there are four papers, one on energy, one on water, one on food security, and one on population. And these are all based on the statistics provided by the Iranian government. And these are papers written by some of Iran's best scholars, economists, social scientists, engineers who are working in some of the top universities around the world. And the image is absolutely frighteningly dire on every one of these fronts. And I think news is getting out uh, to the people and the reality of people's daily lives is pinching them on a regular basis. And unless someone convinces this septuagenarian reactionary leadership that the game is over, unless you change your path and unless you bring in every bit of help you can. The Iranian diaspora is one of the most successful diasporas in the United States. It has an enormous capacity to help Iran transition to a better tomorrow. It has an enormous financial capacity to help Iran. The way successful American Jews helped Israel in the 1950s to make an enormous jump in economic welfare. That same diaspora exists in Iran, but the regime doesn't, the conservatives don't want to allow that because they know if the diaspora comes, the corrupt system can't last, their cronyism can't last, they need to open up the uh, bidding process to a fair uh, scrutiny. All of these things are things they don't want to tolerate. And there comes a time where the economy is going to bite you. Lenin learned this. Every dictator learned this. You can rule by fiat and culture. You can rule by fiat in politics. You can lie about everything. Sooner or later, the economy is going to bite. For those of you just joining us, my guest on KCBS In-Depth is Dr. Abbas Malani, Director of Iranian Studies at Stanford University and Co-Director of Iran Democracy Project at the Hoover Institution. I'm Jane McMillan. What are the options for a new government? Should the people continue to protest and and make change? I'm presuming there are good options from our perspective, freedom's perspective, and there may be poor options from inside. Who are the players we should watch for? Well, I, I think one of the issues is that uh, the current leader is sick, is old, and m- might soon not be around anymore. And part of uh, the tension in Iranian society is what will replace them, whether they will try to bring a new conservative clergy and try to re-amass this structure of uh, 
despotic clerical authority or whether they will see that this is no longer a model that works and will move gingerly, cautiously, but clearly towards a more inclusive and more democratic society. Again, one of the things that I think your listeners uh, need to remember is that literally for over a hundred years in Iran there has been a fight for democracy. Iran had a constitutional revolution in 1905-07. They wrote a very democratic constitution. It was never put in practice in reality because democracy requires more than laws. It requires civil society, it requires a middle class, it requires women to be equal partners in every domain of life. Now all of those conditions are realized in Iran. Iran is ready for a democratic society and a very small militant, organized, armed, brutal minority doesn't want to uh, allow this transition to take place. To me, the best transition is for that alternative, that democratic alternative that will be, I think, from within Iran. That alternative will come from in, inside Iran. Uh, and the United States, I think, has to accept, has to affirm that it recognizes that the future of Iran belongs to the Iranian people and no one else, and that no one else is going to try to interfere and force and pre-select a leadership or a system for Iran. If they allow that process, I, I would be very surprised if in not maybe necessarily the immediate future, but in mid-future, mid-term future, we will see a far more rational, far more democratic, far more inclusive society in Iran. And that to me is really a precondition for regional stability. Iran needs to be democratic for the region to become democratic. Well, the United States does not have a clean record when it comes to interfering in Iran from the uh, the, the Shah, from, you know, you, you talked about the constitutional revolution in 1905-07. The United States has had a hand in regime change in Iran before. What should we do it to help or refrain from doing to hinder what you've just described? It's, I mean, it's fascinating that you would mention the 1905-07. Uh, one of the most revered American characters in Iranian history is someone named Baskerville, who is a teacher missionary sent to the city of Tabriz to teach people English. And he soon, he soon joins the Constitutional Revolution and is killed by Russians in the Constitutional Revolution. Uh, his place of burial in Tabriz is literally a shrine. So America went from a country that gave Iran Baskerville to a country that, as you say, engaged in regime change, moved vigorously to try to overthrow the government of Mossadegh, who was a democratically elected popular government that had challenged British monopoly in Iran. To other instances, uh, the United States sided with Iraq in the war with Iran. The United States looked the other way when Saddam Hussein used chemical weapons against uh, the Iranian people. These are the baggage that comes in that troubled history. But at the same time, the United States, I think, as I indicated, should now say clearly that while we stand with the people of Iran, while we are going to be watching if the regime uses violence against peaceful demonstrators, we are not going to try to interfere, we are not going to try to engage in regime change. Unfortunately, you know, some of the people who are around uh, President Trump are advocates of regime change. They don't believe that anything other than overt, serious regime change policy will help the United States. And to me, that's counterproductive. It's not good for the United States. 
it's certainly not good for the Iranian people and it's certainly not good for the people who are taking their lives into their hands and trying to fight this regime because the regime uses this rhetoric to say all of you are agents of the great Satan. I very much welcome the indications of support by President Trump, although his many other policies, including the Muslim ban, the very egregious Muslim ban, including his siding with Saudi Arabia in every regional uh, conflict, including their complicit silence in Yemen. But nevertheless, in spite of all those problems that critics rightly point to, I think it's a good thing that the President of the United States says we are with the people of Iran and we are watching and is trying to also gather European political opinion and cohere them into a more united uh, position, telling the Iranian people that the world is indeed watching. But the world should not try to dictate how change will come to Iran. That has to come from Iranian people in Iran, primarily. And staying in the Iranian deal, will that help or hinder? I absolutely think staying in the deal will help that process. I, I see no upside to getting out of the deal, except that it will make it more difficult for the Iranian economy to make any improvement. Uh, and the Europeans are not going to get out of the deal by every indication I have seen. So the only thing that it's going to do is going to be allowing the anti-American elements within Iran uh, with uh, scoring propaganda points. Uh, I just don't see the logic of getting out of a deal that is incidentally not a U.S. deal to get out of. It's a U.N. deal. My final question is, is based on something you said a few moments ago, and that is for democracy to flourish, there needs to be a middle class and there needs to be citizens who participate in that democracy. And for the younger listeners tuned in on some of our music stations to this program, how to help them maybe relate better to the struggle of the young Iranians who are protesting and participating as citizens who are concerned about their future, um, for the young people here who are getting politically engaged and concerned about the future of the middle class? Well, uh, you know, I, I think my suggestion to the, the people in this country who enjoy the benefits of democracy is to remind them that democracy is a very fragile thing. Uh, democracy uh, can be undermined and it needs constant vigilant support. Uh, it is very important to recognize that it is a cherished right to be able to listen to music that you want. It is very important for every young uh, woman in America to recognize that if you have any ambition to sing and you can easily walk into a concert hall and perform, or if you are a woman and like soccer and you can go to a stadium and watch, these are not rights that every re uh, regime in the world recognizes. Authoritarian regimes take away these rights. We need fully, consciously, uh, and in a very dedicated manner, both appreciate these rights and defend them, because there are people in the world, there are people here, who uh, don't uh, want these rights to continue, and. Cherishing them requires us to also defend them. That was my discussion on what's going on inside Iran with KCBS's in-depth guest, 
Dr. Abbas Milani. He joined us from Stanford University, where he's the director of Iranian studies and co-director of the Iran Democracy Project at the Hoover Institution. I appreciate you joining us. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.